Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. And as so often happens last week, on January 9th, I hit the publish button on the podcast, and then instantaneously the FDA approved the new drug. That drug was, is avapritinib, and the approval uh, is for adults with unresectable or metastatic GIST, which is GI, gastrointestinal stromal tumor, uh, with um, a platelet-derived growth factor alpha, or PDGFRA, exon 18 mutation, including the D842V mutation. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about GIST first, and I think I deserve a little pat on the back for not using uh, the term, let's let's go through the gist of gist. Um, but then I just said it, I don't deserve the pat on the back. Anyway, so uh, gist, so gastrointestinal stromal tumor is derived from mesenchymal GI cells. So mesenchymal, these are embryonic connective tissue. So when you hear connective tissue, these are sarcoma. So if you're looking for the guidelines, you want to look in the sarcoma guidelines for gist. Now, uh, specifically, these are interstitial cells of Kajal, C-A-J-A-L, ICCs, uh, and they live in the muscle layer surrounding the GI tract. And the vast majority of GIST uh, malignancies have constitutionally active kit signaling, and that's the main driver of tumorigenesis. So this is a driver mutation. So this kit constitutive activation is present in 70 to 85% of, G- of GISTs, and then mutations in PDGFR-alpha are present in 10 to 15%. So most of these patients uh, with GIST are going to be treated with a matinib because it uh, targets both KIT and, to, to some extent, PGFR-alpha. So that's kind of the standard care. If you have GIST, you cut out. If it's high-risk GIST, then you get put on adjuvant and matinib for at least three years. Maybe longer is better. Uh, studies have not gone on longer than that to really show that. Um, and then the disease comes back. Uh, sunitinib is FDA approved in the second line, and then there are data for regorafenib in the third line. Now, there is this, um, well, let's talk about imatinib resistance. So, you know, 60% of these ac- these mutations in KIT are exon 11 mutations. Imatinib works fine for most of those, right? Imatinib 400 is A-OK. Uh, but then you can develop secondary resistance after someone's been on imatinib. Uh, and then there are exon nine mutations, that's about 20% of GIST, um, and that is uh, a mutation in the extracellular domain, so outside the cell, whereas exon 11 mutations, the most common one, is in the juxtamembrane region, and juxtamembrane means just next to the membrane. So these exon nine mutations in the extracellular domain, you can still use a magnet, but you have to use a higher dose, you have to use 800 milligrams, okay? Now, one of the problematic secondary resistance to imatinib is uh, are PDGFR alpha mutations. Um, there are exon 12 mutations, that's in the juxta, the, juxta, the juxtamembrane domain of PDGFR alpha, and then exon 18 mutations. So exon 18 is in the activation loop of the tyrosine kinase domain, uh, and one of the common ones here is the D842V mutation. So the avapritinib approval is for all exon 18 mutations, including the D842V mutation, and we'll see that most of the folks in the study had that D842V mutation. Uh, there are also wild-type GIST, um, so they don't have a constitutive activation. That's only 10% of adults, but 
about 85% of pediatric patients with GIST do not have a, a driver mutation. So this approval is for adults, uh, so there's not a lot of kids who would miss out on potentially this opportunity just because uh, most of the kids have uh, don't have these driver mutations. Um, I'll also point out the GIST affects in the United States three to 5,000 people a year, and we're talking with um, the Exxon 18 mutations. Uh, you know, numerically, that's a pretty low number. I think I saw something like 10 to 15%. But if you do the math, you're talking about 300 to 750 patients a year who might be a candidate for avapritinib. So certainly a, a, a niche or niche approval. Okay, so we've already kind of talked about this with imatinib resistance uh, and what you do. Uh, I do want to point out, and this is kind of for reference when we look at the, the pivotal trial here, in that in patients who have disease recurrence while on imatinib, uh, second-line TKI sosunitinib, the overall response rate, 7%. They're all partial response. It did show progression-free survival benefit versus placebo. In the third-line setting, you have regorafenib, again, shows a progression-free survival benefit versus placebo. Overall response rate, 4.5%, no complete responses. So when you're looking at TKI, you know, anything above 10%, of an overall response rate would be better than what we've seen in the second line setting. Uh, and we haven't seen any complete responses uh, reported. I'm not going to say we haven't seen any, but in the data that I reviewed, didn't see any complete responses. Now, a little bit more about this D842V mutation in PGFR alpha. Uh, again, it decreases uh, the ability of imatinib to access its binding site on PGFR alpha. It has a low mitotic rate, so therefore these are, are usually indolent um, uh, gists, and they usually occur in the stomach, almost exclusively is what I read. Uh, and up until now, there was not a treatment option, so in steps avapritinib. And this is based off of a phase one study, the Navigator study. Now, they actually enrolled more than 200 patients, um, but some of those patients uh, were, um, their, their inclusion criteria was progression after two lines of prior treatment. Uh, there were less than 50 who had exon 18 mutations. Um, there's also an ongoing Voyager study, which is comparing avapritinib versus regorafenib in the third-line setting. So, so phase one study, and actually the dose uh, that they started with was 400 milligrams a day. It had to be decreased to 300, although I could not find what uh, the toxicity was that led to this. But as we'll see, could have been a lot of things. So there are 43 patients, 43, that led to this approval. 43. So, you know, not very many. Um, so 43 with exon 18 mutations, 38 of those 43 had the D842V mutation. Overall response rate in the whole cohort was 84% with 7% um, having complete responses. Now, if you just look at the uh, a subgroup analysis of the D842V uh, sub, subgroup, uh, overall response rate was 89% and 8% CRA. So if you just do some quick al algebra, you'll see that three of these patients had a complete response, and all three of those were with the D842V mutation. Now, uh, the FDA did not approve a test for exon 18 PGFR alpha mutations, and usually when there's a new TKI approved, there's also a companion approval test that's done. So one of the things to look for when this publication comes out is what was the testing methodology used to determine exon 18 mutations um, because that's probably what we should use versus, uh, you know, whatever you may have access to at your institution due to some, you know, maybe differences in how those tests are done. 
I assume it's, it's a NGS, a next-generation sequencing. Uh, so as I mentioned, the dose is 300 milligrams a day. Uh, comes will be available in 100, 200, and 300 milligram tablets, so you can foresee the ability to dose reduce fairly easily. Um, now, it does need to be taken on an empty stomach per the label. That's because taking it with food increases the, the peak concentration by, uh, by 59%. Uh, if it's taken with food, AUC is increased uh, about a third when taken with food. So besides inhibiting PD, PD, besides being a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, that inhibits platelet-derived growth factor alpha, including exon 18 mutations, such as the D842V mutation, also inhibits KIT11 mutations. Those are the mutations that imatinib inhibits uh, intrinsically. And then uh, you also have, and so because it inhibits KIT11, just like imatinib does, you could foresee someone trying to prove a, a fat or avapritinib is superior to imatinib. Not sure we'll see that down the road. Also, uh, mutations of 11 or 17 together, and then um, exon 17 mutations as well. Um, now, that includes the D816V mutation, which is what's targeted in systemic mastocytosis. So, avipertinib may have a role way, way down the future in systemic mastocytosis. So, those are mutant kinases, avipertinib inhibits. It also inhibits wild type kit, wild type platelet derived growth factor beta and CSFR, so colony stimulating factor receptor one. So whenever I see a drug, TK, that inhibits multiple mutant variants of kinases, as well as wild type, I start to think this is a pretty promiscuous kinase inhibitor, probably gonna have a lot of off-target toxicity. Okay, it's a nice transition into the warnings precautions. So these are the serious side effects the FDA wants to put right up front in the, in the summary of the label. There are three of them. One, the first one, intracranial hemorrhage, whoa. Uh, in 1% of patients out of 250 or so treated so far with GIST, 3% total if you include other diseases treated with So intracranial hemorrhage, kind of scary, right? Uh, now, this may be, this is just me speculating, a PGFR beta effect because it's involved in blood vessel development. Maybe, who knows? Maybe some drug interactions as we might see, but again, it's only been tested in, in you know, less than 500 patients. Why this is, we don't know, but intracranial hemorrhages have occurred. Uh, the most, I guess, common of these serious is our CNS effects. So 58% of patients had some sort of CNS effect. Cognitive impairment leading the way with 41%. Dizziness, 20%. By the way, dizziness and intracranial hemorrhage, uh, not a good constellation of side effects for a single drug. Uh, mood changes or mood disorders in 13%, speech dis disorders in 6%, hallucinations in 2%. Uh, and the last warning precaution is for embryo-fetal toxicity, so both men and women taking this drug should use contraceptive techniques. So other toxicities going pretty much in order from highest to lowest, and you will see and hear, you won't see them, but you'll hear some similarities to other TKIs. So edema, 72%, similar to what you might see with a matinib. Fatigue, asthenia, 61%. Nausea, 64%. Vomiting, 38%. That would make it moderately emetogenic. Uh, diarrhea, 37%, including about 5% grade 3 diarrhea. Decreased appetite, 38%, about 3% grade 3. Uh, abdominal pain in 31%. Now, again, these patients have metastatic, unresectable gastrointestinal tumors. Uh, so it's possible that abdominal pain is perhaps from the disease. So we'd really like to see a placebo comparison to see how much of that is underlying disease versus the drug doing this. I have a feeling it might be the drug. Uh, increased lacrimation, 33%. Something you you know you see with maybe some taxanes, but not a whole lot with TKIs. Rash, 23%, including 2% grade three. Hair color changes, 21%. And I meant to look this up, but 
0.5% of patients had a grade three hair color change. I don't know how that's a serious adverse event. Um, but apparently there's a CTCAE category for that. Uh, dyspnea 17%, including 2.5% with a grade three dyspnea. Pleural fusion 12%, sounds similar uh, to dasatinib. Uh, taste changes 15%, which you know uh, correlates to the decrease in appetite. There's also some weight loss that happens. So as we list all of the toxicity profile here with this drug, remember this is an indolent disease. This should be slow growing. Uh, with this not being compared to placebo, we don't even know if this changes the natural history of the disease. We know that there are responses. Uh, the, du the duration of response seems to be pretty good. The median duration of response has yet to be uh, reached, but appears to be a pretty toxic drug. As far as our ADME stuff, we've already talked about how uh, you need to take on an empty stomach because uh, food decreases or increases the absorption, possibly increasing toxicity, similar to the erlotinib story. Uh, absorption is pH dependent, but apparently, according to the PI, it has been tested with gastric suppressing drugs and had no change in the pharmacokinetics, and that's good. Uh, as far as distribution, you got to think this drug has CNS penetration when you look at all the CNS toxicities here. Uh, it is a 3A4 substrate, so it's metabolized mostly by 3A4 to a metabolite, um, and then to some extent also metabolized by CYP2C9. Um, now, it has, there have not been formal drug interaction studies with a lot of substrates, so in vitro modeling predicts there to be an increase of AUC of avapritinib by about 600%, so a six-fold increase in avapritinib levels with a strong 3A4 uh, and peak like a protein inhibitor like itraconazole. We do know from a study uh, that the PI reported that rifampin decreases the AUC by 92% and efavirenz decreases the AUC by 62%. That's a strong and moderate 3A4 inducer. So we do have to worry about drug interactions affecting avapritinib. It also appears we may have to worry about avapritinib affecting uh, and interacting with other drugs. So in vitro studies suggest that it is a quote, time dependent inhibitor as well as inducer of 3A4. And this certainly, to me, sounds a little bit like uh, a preptent, where if you take it for a short period of time, you know, in, in, it inhibits 3A4, but when uh, a preptent is taken for longer periods of time, you do see an induction later on. Maybe that's what we see here, but we'd, we'd have to see a study of avapritinib with midazolam, maybe to see uh, if we are worried about 3A4 drug interactions. Uh, especially when you consider the, uh, the the intracranial bleeding that happened in this study, and not any other bleeding events. Was there some, uh, you know, sub drug interaction with uh, as a three four inhibitor with uh, river oxbane or something like that? We don't know about. It's also an inhibitor of peak like a protein, which could affect things like dabigatran and uh, clopidogrel. Inhibits several other transporting systems as well. Uh, additionally. It is a 2C9 inhibitor, 2C9, the main um, metabolic route for uh, the S enantiomer of orphan. And then the, the oxidative metabolite, the one that's uh, likely metabolized by 3A4, M44, is a 2C8 and 2C9 inhibitor. So certainly a drug that has, in my opinion, a lot of potential for drug-drug interactions. Um, and we don't know what that full description of that, uh, the, those risks could be, and this certainly uh, I think is worth pointing out in light of last week's pod about safety signals, uh, and we don't always get a whole lot of safety signals uh, reported after drug is approved as far as drug interactions. So something, uh, if I come across that, you know, 12 to 24 months from now, I'll, I will certainly bring it up. And then finally, there is no dose change for hepatic dysfunction as long as the billy is less than three times the upper normal. Above that, of course, we don't know. And then okay to give with a credit clearance all the way down to 30 mils per minute. Below that, of course, we don't know. Has not been studied. Uh, so that's avapritinib. 
thank you for listening to uh, to this pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.